All right, go ahead and take your Bibles tonight. We will be in Matthew chapter 2. Going through all of Matthew chapter 2 tonight. But you know, um, actually, you know, keep your finger in Matthew 2 and go to Isaiah chapter 60. I was thinking about this before church. I think I'm going to change up how I was going to approach this subject a little bit. Uh, go to Isaiah chapter 60. I want to read a prophetic passage of Scripture to you first. And here's what I just want you to do while we read this Scripture. I want you to just try to get a picture in your mind of uh, what you what is being described here. All right? I want you to just kind of do that in your mind. And then I'm going to show you some things uh, in Matthew chapter 2 uh, that honestly I have not even come to a full conclusion on yet. But I, I want to... If I got to be confused, I'm going to confuse all of you a little bit too. But it may be not even that confusing. Maybe sometimes we tend to complicate things a little bit. But let's look at what it says in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and His glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light. And kings to the brightness of thy rising. Lift up thine eyes round about, and see, all they gather themselves together. They come to thee, thy sons shall come from far, and thy daughters shall be nursed at thy side. And thou shalt see and flow together, and thine heart shall fear and be enlarged, because the abundance of the sea shall be converted unto thee. The forces of the Gentiles shall come unto thee. The multitude of camels shall cover thee. The dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, all they from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense and they shall show forth the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered together unto thee. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister unto thee. They shall come up with acceptance on mine altar and I will glorify the house of my glory. Who are these that fly as a cloud and as the doves to their windows? Surely the isles shall wait for me in the ships of Tarshish first to bring thy sons from far, their silver and their gold with them under the name of the Lord thy God and to the Holy One of Israel because He hath glorified thee. And the, the sons of the strangers shall build up thy walls and their kings shall minister unto thee. For in my wrath I smote thee, but in my favor have I had mercy on thee. Therefore thy gates shall be open continually. They shall not be shut day nor night that men may bring unto thee the forces of the Gentiles and that their kings may be brought for the nation and kingdom that will not serve thee shall perish. Yea, those nations shall be utterly wasted. The glory of Lebanon shall come unto thee, the fir tree, the pine tree, the box together to beautify the place of my sanctuary and I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons also of them that afflicted thee shall come bending unto thee. And all they that despise thee shall bow themselves down at the soles of thy feet, and they shall call thee the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel, whereas thou hast been forsaken and hated, so that no man went through thee, I will make thee in eternal excellency a joy of many nations. So we see a very glorious passage right here. It's, it's clearly a prophetic passage right here talking about something great and glorious, talking about the Gentiles being coming and worshiping before them, bound before them, bringing them gifts, all these wonderful things. And this prophecy is one that's directed at Israel, is it not? And so, I don't know, I don't know what you pictured in your head when you were reading that, but I saw a pretty glorious picture. I mean, I saw a, a great many Gentiles just coming uh, and coming 
before an altar, coming to before a temple, coming bringing gifts, uh, the, the sons of them that afflicted thee. And, I, and I'm going to tell you in a little bit exactly who those people were. But there were. There was a people that at one time afflicted Israel. And they had them in captivity. And then those their descendants came and says they're going to worship before you. So, pretty amazing picture right there. But let's read Matthew chapter 2. And then we'll talk a little bit about that passage. But it says in verse 1, it says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. And you know, there's a lot of mysteries about these wise men. And most of what is taught about them is based not necessarily on the scriptures, but on tradition. Okay, for example, we know it was two white guys and a black guy. We know there was diversity. Why? Because all the statues of the wise men that you see, all the nativity depictions, it's always two white guys and a black guy. Uh, the black guy is always the wisest of them. Uh, it's always like that on the movies. It's like that every time. Uh, so we know that's true, right? No, we don't know that at all. Okay, that's just tradition. All right? It's just it's just tradition. Uh, we know there's three. According to the Scriptures or according to tradition? The Bible does not tell us how many that there are. No, you know, we know that they came to the manger, right? Because that Bible... No, the Bible doesn't say that either. In fact, we're going to see they come to a house. So, again... Um, most of what we think we know about the wise men, it comes from tradition. And it is. It's always the two white guys and a black guy that come bearing their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, coming at the manger, three of them riding on a camel, all, all that. Okay, That's the picture that is in your head. Thanks to movies, uh, Hollywood, you know, Hollywood paintings, all that stuff. But... Is that what we actually see in the Scriptures? Well, uh, not really. I mean, I, I guess if we just have Matthew 2, maybe. Uh, maybe. In fact, I saw a play years ago on television. It was like, a, it was like one of these indoor stage productions. And it was a pretty big deal. But I remember when I was a kid, I was watching it. And in that play, they had a whole bunch of wise men. And, and I'm, I'm telling you, in this play, when they did it, it was a very majestic scene. They had all these animals. They had camels. I mean, they're bringing all these gifts. They're, uh, they, I mean, they were all decked out like kings. And it was, a pretty, it was a pretty impressive thing. But I remember telling my dad, I was like, why are they doing it like that? There was only three wise men. And my dad's like, well, the Bible doesn't actually say and, you know, that there were three wise men. I was like, really? He's like, yeah, there could have been a bunch of them. It could have been like, like this. And, you know, the more I study, the more I think it probably was like it wasn't that play and not like what we see in the movies and things. But anyway, uh, let's keep on reading and see what we can learn. And so it says, though, that they had seen his star in the east. They were come to worship him. Uh, we, do, we have no idea how they figured out from the stars where and when the Messiah would be born. Okay, Don't go to the local bookstore and go to the New Age section and buy a book on astrology and think it's okay because of the wise men. Okay, uh, we don't know where they got their information. Okay, you, if you go to get that astrology book, you're getting it from some witch who probably is, you know, doing was doing drugs when she wrote that book. Okay, so uh, no, this is not permission for you to do that. 
I don't know how they got the information that they did, but we obviously know they got it. But they knew that that star that they saw was a sign that the Messiah had been born. Verse 3, When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And this would be a troubling thing for Herod to hear because for one, a king being born in his area would mean an end to his reign, which obviously he wouldn't like the sound of that. But another reason I think Herod was concerned about this, and understand too, historically, this is Herod the Great. There was a bunch of Herods in the Bible, but traditionally this was Herod the Great who was known for his building. He was the one who uh, restored the temple to his former glory according to history. This is all historical stuff. But he was, he was, a, he was a pretty wicked guy. He was very powerful. But then after he died, the kingdom kind of split into, into four different, uh, sections. And so you do, you have different Herods that were all named in there. So not every time you see Herod in the Bibles that talk about the same individual. Agrippa, for example, King Agrippa was actually, according to history, one of his names was Herod Agrippa. And I believe he was the grandson of Herod the Great, if I remember, if my memory serves me correctly. But Herod, hearing about a king being born, or even just if the people think a king has been born, this is something that's troubling for him because what everybody knows about Herod too, according to history, is he was kind of a puppet king for Rome. Uh, Most people don't even believe he was Jewish, that he was an Edomite, but he was somebody that, uh, you know, the Roman Empire, they would put people over areas that they could control that they had under their thumb. It kind of like is in a lot of our world today, you know, and we won't talk about who's in charge or anything like that. We don't get in trouble, but, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of, they like to get just kind of empty shell people, kind of like Joe Biden's, okay, that has no idea what's going on, but he'll do whatever they tell him to do. And that's kind of how, that's kind of how Herod was. And so the thing is, if somebody else steps up and the people start thinking, no, we're going to follow this guy, the Romans are going to get upset. And they're going to tell him, you can't get control. We're going to put somebody in here who can control these people. And I think that's one of the reasons Herod is going to lash out in a horrible, horrible way. Because the last thing he needs is the people rallying around another king. And so, notice how when these men, they came, these wise men, they intended not just to honor this baby, but they came to worship him. So we're coming to worship him. Now, this is, uh, this is a, that's a big deal. Worshiping somebody. That kind of tells me they knew who he was. That they knew this was God. They, they had an understanding of who the Messiah was. And so this was, I believe, what we are seeing here. There's one of two things. Either, and and I, I'm not going to take a hard line stance on this, but what we are about to see here in this story is either a full-blown fulfillment of what we read in Isaiah 60, or it could be a foreshadowing. It, it could be. But I'm telling you, if this was the fulfillment of this, you know, it, it, it just kind of shows us kind of how, you know, a lot of the uh, prophetic language, you know, is something that a lot of times is describing the glo- when it's describing the glory of something, it's more a, a dis- of a description of the spiritual nature of it. Because it's kind of like when we get saved. When we get saved, is it not a glorious thing? We are born again. 
We are, I mean, we are, we are seated with Christ in heavenly places, spiritually, right? But at the same time, too, when a person gets saved, is it that glorious of a thing, physically speaking? No. I mean, have you ever gotten a whole neighborhood's attention when you got somebody born again at their house? No, most of the neighborhood's not paying attention. They, they, they don't really care, even though a glorious thing just took place with that person getting saved. Okay? And so again, we do. The reason I think this could be a foreshadowing of something that's still yet to come is because of the fact, too, that I believe just like our salvation, why it spiritually is a glorious thing, physically it's not that glorious. However, we do believe we will be glorified someday. We do believe that that day is going to come where we will literally shine like the brightness of a firmament. That day has not come yet, but it will come when we see Christ. So it is possible that some of what we're seeing here is going to have a more physical fulfillment that looks like what we read in Isaiah 60. But without a doubt, I believe what we're going to see here is for sure spiritual fulfillment of what's described in Isaiah chapter 60. So let's just kind of go back and look at and highlight a few points. So look at verse 1. Arise and shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people, but the Lord shall arise upon thee, and His glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. Is that not exactly what was happening? That light, they saw His star in the east, and what do we have? Gentiles following that light. Well, this looks a lot more glorious than Isaiah chapter 60. Well, maybe it was a little more glorious than two white guys and a black guy riding on camels. Maybe it was a large caravan of people. Maybe it was a big group of people, you know, like, like in that one play I was telling you about. Maybe it was something much more glorious when these people came. Because obviously, when this happened too, this upset Herod quite a bit when he sees these wise men who came to find this king. Why would he have been that threatened if it's just two white guys and a black guy saying, hey, we want to go find the king? Maybe it's because he saw, hey, this is a large group of powerful people. This is the forces of the Gentiles that are coming to see this man. So I don't know. Maybe we're missing this because we're looking for something that pictures more like the nativity scenes that we see, but this was probably a much greater thing that took place that day. I don't know. You know, because when you see stories like this too, it's just like, did nobody in Bethlehem notice this? You know, why didn't, why wasn't it something people were talking about? I don't know. You know, what happened, those shepherds who saw the multitude of heavenly hosts, what happened to those guys? You know, I don't, the Bible doesn't tell us what happened to those people. It's one of the things we can, we scratch our heads about. But uh, jump down to verse 6. The multitude of camels shall cover thee. The dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, all they from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense. Isn't that what they did? They brought him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Uh, this seems like prophetic about the wise men that we're seeing here. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered together unto thee. The rams of Nebioth shall minister unto thee. They shall come up with acceptance on mine altar, and I will glorify the house of my glory. And you say, well, that, that sounds kind of like the temple. we got the altar and the temple. It sounds like they're coming to the temple. But wait a minute. 
didn't God replace the temple? Isn't the, isn't the temple the body of Jesus Christ? Remember He said, destroy this temple in three days I'll raise it up. I think they brought it to the right temple. I believe Jesus is the fulfillment of this. Yes, it's talking about a temple. Yes, it's talking about an altar. I've, I was I refer to that. That it's a Southern Gospel song I liked the other day about called "Put Out the Fire." But one of the lines in that song when it's talking about John the Baptist telling the people how those lambs could never take away sins. Uh, but I, I don't remember the line before. But they said the altar. He knew that things were soon about to change. The altar would forever be the cross. That became the altar. We don't have an altar in Jerusalem. We go to. What do we go to? We go to the cross. Not physically speaking, but we go to the cross, we go to that altar by remembering the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And any time we go and we take the Gospel to someone and we tell them about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and they put their faith in what Jesus did on that cross, you know what they're doing? They're going to the altar. The real altar. Not this altar. Not the altar in Jerusalem. No, they're going to Jesus Christ. I believe Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of what we're seeing here in Isaiah chapter 60. And again, according to history, Herod was the one who greatly refurbished the temple, bringing it to the former glory. This probably caused many Jews to think that God was about to do great things in that temple. But remember when Jesus went in in His triumphal entry, you know what? They had turned His Father's house into a den of thieves. When He looked at the city, He wept over it. You know why? It was not acceptable what they had done. But you know what? The wise men, they didn't come bowing before the altar in Jerusalem, going before a temple. They came before Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, it was appropriate for them to worship that baby. It was appropriate for them to worship Christ. Verse, uh, look at verse 12 of Isaiah chapter 60. It says, For the nation and kingdom that will not serve thee shall perish, yea, those nations shall be utterly wasted. Now, can anybody tell me what happened to Israel after they rejected Christ? They got utterly wasted, didn't they? They got destroyed for, for what they did. Look at verse 14. The sons also of them that afflicted thee shall come bending unto thee. And all they that despise thee shall bow themselves down at the soles of thy feet. And they shall call thee the city of the Lord, the Zion, the Holy One of Israel. Whereas thou hast been forsaken and hated, so that no man went unto thee, I will make thee an eternal excellency and a joy of many generations. And again, now when you read this, you're thinking, this is Israel. This is Israel. And understand, it was, when Isaiah was written, okay, without going into the whole, all the history of Isaiah, Isaiah was written during the time when the Assyrians were about to come in. And, the, and while Judah ended up being spared judgment, the northern kingdom did get taken captive during that time. And then, but, uh, Later, Judah also paid for the sins that they had done before that. God just delayed the punishment because they got right during the time of Hezekiah. But later, they did go into captivity by Babylon. And then after that, the Medes and Persians had them. And, and whenever they got taken captive by those nations, it fulfilled a lot of the prophecies about the captivity that we see in Isaiah chapter 60. But in all the prophecies about the captivity, one of the things that we will see in those prophecies are also prophecies of restoration. And so we see that as well in Isaiah. And in that prophecy of Isaiah, while they're telling them, you're going to go into captivity for your sins, you know what was also prophesied? 
that the day is going to come where the very people that held you captive, the sons of them, are going to come and they are going to bow before you, Israel. And when was that fulfilled? I believe that was fulfilled when these wise men from the east, you want to know what's east of Israel? Babylon and then Persia. Both the two places that had them in captivity, the, the, uh, the Babylonians and the Persians, and you can kind of make them one because when, uh, when the Bible talks about Cyrus, it refers to him as the king of Babylon. It also refers to him as the king of Persia because he took over the king of Babylon. So literally, the, if these men are, like most people believe traditionally, are from Persia, they are. They are the descendants of those who had held Israel captive. And again, it doesn't make sense that they would go and worship before the Jews' feet. Look how sorry they were. But it made sense that it's Christ. Because again, the promises to Israel are fulfilled in Christ. That's what people need to get a hold of. They are fulfilled in Christ. And so they did. This right here is, I literally believe, that these wise men coming to Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy, or at least foreshadowing this prophecy, from Isaiah chapter 60. And, uh, and these men, they descended from those nations that held them in captivity. And so, and here's the other thing too. Because again, Cyrus, he was king of Persia, Babylon, and Daniel, for example. Daniel, he was taken captive when they, uh, in, in the beginning. In Daniel chapter 1, we're at the beginning of the captivity. And then when you get to Daniel in the lion's den, that's during the times of the Medes and Persians. So Daniel's an old man at this point. Daniel was around during the Babylonian captivity and also during the Persian captivity. And you know, I can't help but think that maybe Daniel got some guys saved when he was over there. I can't help but think that maybe there were some people, there was a remnant of people in Babylon or Persia who remembered the Word of God that Daniel shared with them, that knew of a coming Messiah that Daniel prophesied about. Daniel did a lot of prophesying about the coming of the Messiah. And you know what? Maybe Daniel knew, Daniel knew a little more than the Bible tells us that he knew. And maybe Daniel showed these guys. I've heard people theorize on that before, but I don't know. I, I, have, no, I have no idea. I can only guess. It's just speculation. But, but either way, I can't help but think that these men, somehow, truth got to them. And I can't help but think it was connected to the time when Israel's in captivity with them. And so, it's just kind of an interesting story. And so, but this is why this story, I believe, is in the Bible. Matthew is showing the Jews that Jesus is where the prophecies find fulfillment. That I, I do believe Matthew is directed at the Jews. So, verse 4 says, When he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah? For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. And that is a quote from Micah 5.2. It says, But thou, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from old of, from old of everlasting, from everlasting. So it is, it's interesting to me. They were able to figure out the prophecies when the king specifically asked them about it, but yet they weren't really looking for them, were they? 
It's like, like a lot of Christians, they know the answers to the trivia questions, but they don't apply the Scriptures in their life. If these guys knew that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem, why didn't they have a practice every time a baby was born in Bethlehem, I don't know, to just like, just check some qualifications and things. They knew a few things. Hey, are you from the tribe of Judah? Are you from the line of David? I mean, you'd think they'd be watching. It, and the thing is, isn't it interesting how Jesus had such a hard time finding faith in Israel, but He would always find great faith with the Gentiles. And isn't that what we're seeing right here in the very beginning? You don't have Jews. I mean, the Messiah is born right under their nose. There's no room for them in the end. But what do we have? Gentiles. Hey, the Messiah is here. They saw a start. They come looking for Him. They come worshiping Him. The Gentiles are the ones who are ready for the Messiah. I think that's, I think that's interesting too. So, again, you know, who cares what you know if you don't do anything with that knowledge? Congratulations, you know the Ten Commandments. But you killed four people last week. You know, it doesn't matter. It's what you do with what you know. And so these scribes, when the king asked them, hey, where's this king supposed to be born? Bethlehem. They, they, they immediately knew. And so it says, then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. <clears throat> um, and so this is where we start to see something too, again, that goes against our traditions. Herod wants to know uh, when the star appeared because he wants to know the age of the child, I believe, to narrow down who it could have been. And again, I'm not real interested in that debate about whether or not they came to the manger. I don't think they did. But it would appear from this story that they did not. And the only thing that would maybe cause me to question this fact is it does appear that the wise men did go to Bethlehem. And I don't really know why Mary and Joseph would have stayed there. Because we know they went to Bethlehem because they were to be taxed and they were basically doing a register of the people during that time. So I don't know why they would have stayed there. But at the same time, it says, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. And so notice how Herod called him a young child. And it says, and when they had heard the king, they departed and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And again, we're assuming the star took them to Jerusalem or, or to Bethlehem, but it is possible he could have taken them to Nazareth, you know, which was a lot farther from Jerusalem. Nazareth is, I, uh, I think, about 60 or 70 miles as the crow flies north of Jerusalem, where Bethlehem, I think it's only like less than 20 miles south of Jerusalem. So I, I don't know for sure, but either way, Notice what it says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were coming to the house, Jesus wasn't born in a house. He was born in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And so, verse 12, And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeareth to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt and be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child 
to destroy him. And when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. Okay, now I know this is Matthew talking, but in Luke, you know, it's referring to him as a babe. But, and, uh, but here, it's referring to him as a young child. And again, another reason they might have hung around Bethlehem is because, too, if we go to Luke, we do see them going to the temple to do certain things that, according to the law, offering the two turtle doves and all those things. And uh, so, you know, it would have been convenient to stay in Bethlehem, which is close to Jerusalem, rather than going all the way up to Nazareth uh, when you have to go back to the temple. And I don't know what all things they would have had to do. So that's another reason they could have stayed around there a little bit longer. And, and again, while Luke called it a babe, you know, Matthew could have described it as a young child. And, you know, I mean, a baby's a young child too, I guess. But e- either way, um, a lot of people think Jesus was probably about two years old because, again, Herod had everyone two and under killed according to the time he inquired of the wise men. And so, he ends up going to Egypt and verse 15 says, and he was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying, out of Egypt have I called my son. Now, turn over to Hosea chapter 11. Now, I covered this the other night, but I, I don't want to skip this because you know we're doing this study through Matthew and if, if people watch this, this is extremely important information uh, that matters a lot. But in he, Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, it says, When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. Now, we know that's talking about Israel. And it for sure is talking about Israel here in verse 2 because it says, And they called, as they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed unto Balaam and burned incense to graven images. And then just refer back to my sermon I did a few weeks ago about Jesus and Israel in the wilderness. Okay? Israel did everything wrong in the wilderness. They gave in to every temptation. Jesus, the fulfillment of all things Israel, who was literally from Israel, who descended from Abraham, who was the seed of Abraham. Jesus Christ, when He went into the wilderness, He did not give in to any temptation. He was tempted in all points, like as we are, as, as Israel was, yet without sin. He passed all the tests. Satan came to him and did the same tests that he did to Israel in the wilderness. And Israel failed all of them. Jesus passed all of them. Quoting scriptures that were related to those passages in the Old Testament where Israel failed. So... Refer back to my message on Jesus and Israel in the wilderness. We're not going to go through all of that again. So Hosea 11 is without a doubt talking about Israel, but at the same time, it's okay to apply this to Jesus Christ because God, just like God wanted to accomplish something with Israel and they failed, God was going to accomplish something for Israel through Jesus Christ who would succeed. So when Jesus goes to Egypt and he comes out of Egypt, now the prophecy is fulfilled out of Egypt till I call my son. Because it didn't get done. It did not get done with physical Israel, but it did get done with Jesus Christ. So it is true it's about Israel, but it's also true it's about Jesus. So I'm not going to preach all of that again, but we will see a lot of things like that in the book of Matthew where Jesus is getting everything accomplished that Israel failed to get done. 
So verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and all the coasts thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. And understand too that you know a lot of time could have passed between when the wise men left Herod and then you know how long before he was expecting to come back. You know I don't know was it days, weeks, months? It's, it's really hard to say. But either way, and he could have added some time too to be safe. And so he just any under two years old, kill them. And so verse seventeen says, "Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying." In Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. And this is referring to Jeremiah 31, 15. It says, Thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rahel weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. So this prophecy not only shows the slaughter of children, but I believe the reason it refers to Rachel is it's also telling us where it would happen. Because Genesis 48, 7 says, And as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died by me in the land of Canaan in the way, when yet there was but a little way to come unto Ephrathah, and I buried her there in the way of Ephrath. The same is Bethlehem. So, Bethlehem is where Rachel was buried. And so, I believe the prophet, when he referred to Rachel weeping for her children, it was just showing where this was going to take place. So, I, I believe that's why he refers to Rachel. So, the, the story, this story, too, is a reminder. Let's just remember this, too. Okay, this is a, a whole other subject for another day. But this is a reminder of just how far wicked men will go to stay in power. They will wipe out a bunch of young children, if that's what they have to do to stay in power. So I don't think leaders would do... Yes, they did then, and they still would today. We are seeing too, another thing that we're going to start seeing more and more of, is we're going to see more and more Republicans start jumping on the pro-choice bandwagon. You know why? Because the polls are saying people are losing elections because of their stand for life. And so you know what we're going to see? We're going to see a bunch of Republicans support the butchering of babies so they can stay in power. How are they any different than Herod? How are they any different? They're not. You know what? Wicked people will do whatever they have to do. Wicked people, wicked nations. Listen, Herod killed a bunch of kids so he could stay in power, but there's no way Netanyahu would do anything like that. There's no way or he would let terrorists do something like that. Folks, these people will do anything to stay in power. Right? We, everybody just needs to get that in their head. These powers that be, uh, they, are, they are demonic. They are evil. Uh, Satan is behind them. And there is no limit to the evil that they will do. Never underestimate the evil these people do to stay in power, even if they're Republican. Just mark it down. These people are not our friends. And so, verse 19 but when Herod was dead, that's just a good feel-good part there too. Remember that with all these people that are doing everything that they're doing in our country and the world. They'll, they'll be dead one of these days. And Herod's still in hell today. So, just a little comfort there. But an angel of the Lord appeareth in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, 
saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and go into the land of Israel, for they are dead which sought the young child's life. And he arose and took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. So, we know they wouldn't have been there too long because we know that Jesus was back in Jerusalem when he was 12. We know that from the story in Luke. And also, according to history, according, according to history, Herod died around B.C. 4, which supposedly Jesus was supposed to have been born around B.C. 3 or 4 or something like that. Obviously, uh, you know, those dates aren't real accurate, but they're definitely within the ballpark of each other to where it uh, fits what the Bible talks about. And so it says in verse 22, But when he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of his father Herod, he was afraid to go thither. Notwithstanding being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee, and he came and dwelt in the city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. And so Bethlehem was very close to Jerusalem, and if you know Herod's son is reigning in Judea, he's like, I don't want to go there. So he ends up going to Nazareth, which was, again, it was a lot farther north around Galilee. And there was also a lot of Gentiles uh, that were in the Galilee area. And so now, here's what's interesting. It said him going and staying, around, staying in Nazareth, it would fulfill the prophecy that he would be called a Nazarene. Okay? And, and notice what it specifically said, that which was spoken by the prophets. He should be called a Nazarene. Well, if you do a little bit of study on this, you will find out there is no prophecy that directly states he will be called a Nazarene. That you can't find that uh, anywhere in the Scriptures. But there's actually a few good possibilities. And considering Jesus literally fulfilled every other prophecy, I'm sure he fulfilled this one too. Okay? But, but either way, what do we do? Because we can't find a passage that specifically says he should be called a Nazarene. But some people believe that it was a prophecy that isn't recorded in Scriptures because it de doesn't name the prophet and it just says prophets plural. I mean, that's possible. Uh, that's possible, but at the same time, uh, we can't prove that. But another thing too, the fact that it says prophets shows that Jesus living in Nazareth would be a fulfillment of something the prophets taught about the Messiah. Okay? Now, what would that be? Because again, it doesn't, it's not giving a direct quote. It's just showing him living in Nazareth is going to be a fulfillment of something the prophets spoke of. So what would that be? Now, some say that Nazareth means a branch, which is, I, I don't know. Okay? If I looked it up in the concordance and all that, I didn't see anything that, it just says somebody who lives in Nazareth. Uh, that, that's all it said in there. Uh, and concordance aren't inspired anyway. But there are, uh, there were three different prophets that prophesied that he would be called a branch. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Zechariah. They all prophesied that he'd be called a branch with the capital B. So some people think that's the fulfillment of it. Uh, I don't know. But another theory that I think is an interesting one uh, is him being called a Nazarene was a, uh, showing a prophecy that he's somebody who would be despised. Because apparently, and we do have an example of this in the Scriptures, that it was it was like a lowly thing to be from Nazareth. Okay? It looks like there are some places in the world you don't want to tell people that you're from uh, because they'll think negative thoughts about you. 
Any, are there any cities we can think of where it's just like you don't want to be from that city? Yeah, Las Vegas. Yeah, Chicago. Yeah, San, San Francisco. Yeah, somebody comes in here, he better be alpha male if he's like from San Francisco. Uh, or, you know, we we had and we we had the one guy from San Francisco that visited the church a few times that we were all suspicious about, and guess what? He turned out to be a full-blown sodomite from San Francisco. I didn't know he was from San Francisco when he was coming. Otherwise, I, that would have probably been like, yeah, that's enough. Get out of here. <laughs> but, uh, but, but either way, yeah, so there, we, and, and when I was growing up, you know, Naylor, that was, my, my grandma lived in Naylor, but Naylor, Missouri is a town that, you know, it, it, you have to see it. But my dad used to call it the armpit of America. And it was just, it was just a crummy town, a lot of drugs in that town and stuff. But anyway, apparently Nazareth was like that. And so let me show you, though, because there were more than one prophet who prophesied that the Messiah would be despised. In Psalms 22.6, But I am a worm, and no man, a reproach of men, and despised of the people. All they that see me laughing to scorn, they shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord that He would deliver him. Let them deliver him, seeing He delighted in him. So right there is a prophecy that He be despised. Isaiah 53 also says, Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For He shall grow up before Him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see Him, there is no beauty that we should desire Him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from Him, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Isaiah 60, 14, The sons also of them that afflicted thee, we've already looked at this passage, shall come bending unto thee, and all they that despise thee shall bow themselves down at the soles of thy feet, and they shall call thee the city of the Lord, the Zion, the Holy One of Israel. So we see these references about being despised, but we see saw too that Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy. But you say, well, how, does, how do we know biblically that being from Nazareth means despised? Well, one good clue is in John 1.46. says, And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said unto him, Come and see. And we're all familiar with that story. When, he found, when they said we found the Messiah, he's from Jesus of Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Like, really? You know, if we hear about a new man of God, we hear about a new pastor that's really great from San Francisco. What? Can a, can a good pastor come out of San Francisco? I mean, we're, that's not where we're looking. That's not what we're expecting, but, but I, guess, I guess it's possible. You know, God has used stranger things before. So, uh, again, that could be what that's referring to. Uh, you know, either way, it doesn't matter. But again, so I, I can't confirm that Matthew's talking about those prophecies. But uh, another thing, too, some, you know, this is something else I thought about, and I tried to see if I could find any evidence of this, but it is possible that um, Nazareth, um, it, it would have had a different name back when the Old Testament prophets were written because Nazareth was a name that it got during the time of the Greek Empire. So I'm almost wondering if maybe it, there's a, another name associated with it that there is an Old Testament prophecy about. We're just missing it. I don't know. But I, I couldn't figure it out. But either way, uh, if the Bible says He fulfilled it, I believe He fulfilled it without a doubt. So either way, either way you spin it, Jesus was the fulfillment of all these things. Matthew is the gospel or it's the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus was good news for Israel. He's also good news 
for the world. People like to act like, you know, Jesus just came for the Jews, but because they didn't receive him, then he went to the Gentiles. Well, if that's the case, then why were these Gentiles so excited about the Messiah when he was born? Why is that? You know why? Because like the angel said in Luke 2.10, and the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. It looks like we're still in plan A. Not plan B. This is plan, this is plan A. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there is with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And what everyone needs to get a hold of, and we've talked about this a lot as we've gone through the books of Ezra and many other places in the Bible, the reason Gentiles were to be a blessing to Israel was because the Messiah was going to come from Israel and God was going to bless the world through that one who was going to come from Israel, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these things. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises to Genesis chapter 12. I had somebody today trying to tell me that, no, these promises, there's a difference between what we got through Abraham by faith and what God promised to Israel. It's like somebody needs to tell Peter that because in Acts chapter 3, in Acts chapter 3, he referred to that prophecy where God told Abraham, bless him, I will bless you. And he said, God sent Jesus to bless you. Jesus was the blessing. And he blessed Israel when he paid for their sins. It's not his fault that they rejected that. And the whole world has been blessed through Abraham's seed, Jesus Christ. And so, that was why it was important. That was why it was prophesied. That, that Cyrus too, the thing, all the things that he did for Israel so they could build that temple, so they could prepare for the Messiah. All of these things God greatly blessed because what they were doing in helping the Jews was going to be something that would help them in the long run. It would help all of the world because Jesus came to be the Messiah for all the world. Sam Gipp was wrong when he said, I never called Jesus my Messiah. My Messiah. So I know he's not his Messiah. Yeah, but he's supposed to be. Okay? He's supposed to be. Just like he's supposed to be the Jews' Messiah. Too. He was their Messiah. They just rejected him. And so he was the Messiah for the whole world. And so that's Matthew chapter 2. Just, just keep, start keeping this in your mind. Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the fulfillment of these things. He's where it's at. And you know, I don't want to preach another message to you. But, you know, um, I'm telling you, we've gotten, we're, we're, it's amazing how much Christians, Christians, named after Christians, after Jesus Christ, how much we've got the focus of Jesus Christ in so many things. And let me just say, too, when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity, we'll be talking about that Sunday, uh, really interesting study, but it is amazing the things that are just so simple that are right there on paper that we're missing. Nobody wants to look to Jesus for anything. Everybody's always wanting to look past Him, look outside Him to just get this extra special knowledge on things. Folks, we find everything we need in Jesus Christ. And that means something. That, that means something. We often say these things, but no, this actually means something. 
more about Jesus. I was thinking about a lot of the hymns as I was preparing for that message. I think the old timers understood this. I think dispensationalism has got people away from this mentality, but more about Jesus. That's what we need to get to know about. More about Jesus. It's all about Him. He's where the fulfillment of things are. And so, with that, let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank You so much for this chapter and just the amazing uh, story that it is. And Lord, we just thank You so much for what You did for us and what a miracle it was. I pray You'll help us to never get over it. I pray we'll never stop telling people about it. Uh, But we'll uh, continue to spread that light to the world. In Your name we pray. Amen.